I said we were done with the 13th canto of Inferno, and I lied. Or has this, I wasn't able to predict the future. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. In the last episode of this podcast, we finished off Canto 13, Seventh Circle of Hell, Second Ring, those violent against themselves and their own property. And I said, we're moving on to the blasphemers. And I have moved on. (laughs) There are plenty of episodes already lined up and in the queue to drop for Canto 14 and 15. However, I'm inserting this episode into the podcast, Walking with Dante, because so many questions arose through email and in social media about Canto 13 that I want to share them with you because I find these questions fascinating. And I have three basic questions that came up. Two people, I ask their permission to use their question and our discussion in a podcast episode. And one person I didn't. And so I'm going to leave that person anonymous because it's actually not about 13, but about a larger problem with walking with Dante that I'm going to talk to you about. So two questions about Canto 13, and then one, a larger one about the whole podcast. So let's get going. Let's take the first question as it comes. Anne from the US wrote me. She wrote me on social media, actually through an Instagram DM. Can you say a bit more about I believe that he believed that I would believe and how that relates to literary interpretation? She said, I still don't get it and I don't get how that works and maybe you could talk that out. And she and I talked this out a bit in DMs on Instagram and I thought it would be an interesting thing to bring up here. So let me go back and read you that tercet way back at the beginning of Canto 13. We've come into the wood of the suicides where the squanderers will eventually crash through the underbrush. Uh, We've got to this place where we've seen the harpies. We've heard a little bit about them. Virgil stops, says, before you go farther in, I want you to know that we're in the second ring, yada, yada. We'll be here until you get the horrible sand. Look around. You'll see stuff that you wouldn't trust even if I gave a formal oration on it. And then the pilgrim hears uh, wailing in every direction, didn't know where it was coming from. He stopped, was completely lost. Smarito, as I discussed endlessly in that episode. And then comes the lines. I believe that he believed that I would believe that all the voices from among the branches came from people who were hidden from us. I talked through the tenses of that in the medieval Florentine, the present to the simple past, to the imperfect subjunctive, how that worked. And I said, this is the root of literary interpretation. Let me just talk a little bit about I believe that he believed that I would believe. And in order to talk about this, I have to go way back. The roots of modern literary interpretation come out of the tradition of biblical hermeneutics from even the Middle Ages. Hermeneutics, the study of interpretation or the acts of of interpretation, a hermeneutical seminar (laughs) or a seminar on hermeneutics in grad school would be a seminar on the way that interpretation works. And generally, even today, when we say hermeneutics, we can mean any text. We can mean the comedy. Generally, that word is used in the English language to indicate biblical interpretation. Okay, it comes out of this long-standing biblical tradition of hermeneutics. And what is that? 
That is that you take a text and you build a structure of meaning on top of that text. You, as the monks perhaps did in the Middle Ages, you take a certain passage from St. Paul or from the Tanakh, from the Old Testament or from Torah, the Pentateuch, somewhere in there you take a text and then you start to build up off of it an interpretive framework. And generally what happens along the way is that you slightly divert from the text itself. The structure becomes slightly diversionary from the text itself. Let me give you an example of this. Let's say that I took that parable of the sower where Jesus, you know, throws the seed out. Uh, this came up in one of the episodes of the podcast and some falls on the, the no good ground. Some comes up with brambles and some comes up good. Okay, great. And I take that parable and I start to talk about how this works and how you broadcast seed. And let's say I develop an entire thing about how when you preach the gospel, I'm being very religious right here. When you preach the gospel, it's very important that the seed that you throw out to both the dry ground and to the good ground is the same seed. You don't pander to the dry ground and you also don't complicate it for the good ground, but it is the same seed in all circumstances. Okay, what I just did, I built a structure off that text. Jesus in that parable in no way talks about the seed. He no where mentions the seed as a symbol or a metaphor, but it is clearly a metaphor of what he's trying to preach, but he doesn't actually talk about the quality of the seed. I have then intuited that out of that passage, and I've built a bigger structure on top of it. And in fact, if I were a minister, let's say I were preaching this sermon in a church, Wow, that would be a crazy thing to get this old unbeliever in a church to preach a sermon. Well, let's say I was preaching a sermon in a church, then what would happen is I would probably go off forever onto the question of what seed is and how this, what we have to be about the seed now, what seed we have to throw out and how it has to be consistent, right? I would, what I'm suddenly starting to do is build application off my interpretive structure that is built onto the parable itself. That's hermeneutics. And that is the root of literary interpretation. I stand here in the present, I believe, the first part of the line in Dante's text, that he believed. So I believe that Jesus believed I'm automatically believing something. In other words, the, oh, how do I say this? The act of interpretation is an imaginative act. I believed that he believed that I would believe. So I'm saying, I'm thinking that when Jesus gave this line about this parable about the sower, he would believe what I would now say about the seed. He is saying it in such a way that he is causing, tangentially in the subjunctive, my interpretation. That's why Dante's smart. It's that subjunctive there at the back of the line. It further complicates the line. Now, it is true that the belief statement is usually followed by a subjunctive verb in Italian, but nonetheless, it's working out. <laughs> 
exactly the way. Well, at least I want it to, in that it's moving farther and farther away from a truth claim. The only truth claim really in the sentence is I believe, the present tense, that he believed, and now it's getting a little funky, and it's funky that that verb is not in the subjunctive, actually. It's just a simple past that I would believe, and now it gets really funky. Well, did you believe it or did you not? What happens here is you develop a hall of mirrors. There's this crazy hall of mirrors that's being developed in which there's me, and then there's my imagination of Dante, James, Jesus, Faulkner, Dickinson, and then further, my imagination of what I think they would expect me to see inside their texts. When I was an undergrad, English departments were ruled by, well, American and UK English departments were ruled by what were called the new critics. We were not allowed as an undergrad to ever discuss any historical resonances in any piece of literature. We were never allowed to discuss biography, any kind of historical, biographic, cultural accretion around a text was disallowed because the theory was that texts were perfect crystalline structures that exist atemporally outside of time and that art is an atemporal medium. This is why the new critics loved Keats so much because Art is an atemporal medium in which this kind of beautiful aesthetic object beyond the dictates of time is finally produced. And its temporal location, that it was made in 1863 or 1312 or, I don't know, 2021, has no effect on it if it's a piece of art because it has vaulted up into the heavens of perfection. And so now what we have to do is we have to look at it and see how close to perfection does it get. And this is always the question when I was an undergrad, where are any cracks in the crystalline structure? New critics call those the ambiguities. But okay, where are any cracks in the crystalline structure? If, if we can point any out, well, that look, you know, this is a little bit of a problem because let's take Jane Eyre. This is a little bit of a problem in Jane Eyre because all along Jane seems to be rebelling against God and the Christian tradition. And then at the very end of Jane Eyre, she's saved essentially through a Christian miracle of Rochester's voice appearing across the moors. All along, she seems to have been this materialist, and then she's saved by a miracle. That's a problem in the text. It's a crack. We might look at the ambiguities there, but we'd still claim it's a beautiful aesthetic object, Jane Eyre. And we still wouldn't talk about Charlotte Bronte and her own struggles or the cultural moment. We'd leave that all aside. What the new critics are doing, and now I've banged on long enough about this, but what the new critics are doing is they're trying to shatter all those mirrors of I believe that he believed that I would believe. They're trying to take that hall of mirrors of the imaginative act of hermeneutics or interpretation and shatter it and say, look, it doesn't matter anymore. All those mirrors facing each other and creating infinity in interpretation on being Beyond it, it doesn't matter. Let's not talk about it. Let's let's pretend that stuff doesn't exist. It's extraordinarily unsatisfying. And when I went off for my PhD, that whole system of hermeneutics had died. And now we were becoming more and more interested in cultural resonances, in historical resonances, and also in what 
we bring to a text. And this is where it gets a little funky. You know, we can embrace the imaginative act of interpretation in Dante. We still have to stand on the text and we still have to try to root ourselves in the text and see if our interpretation makes sense in the text as a whole. I'm going to give you an example about this in a minute. And we have to stand there. And yet at the same time, we can kind of revel in this notion, particularly in medieval texts, that there's all this space left for interpretation, all this play that runs around the text itself. I have used this metaphor before for Dante, but now I'm going to use it for me and for you. I've always said that everybody has a pasture, that you have to fence your pasture, and then you have to figure out how things fit inside that pasture. Fair enough. That's how it goes. You get your pasture, and then you have to move the fence eventually. And remember, there's this whole sheep and goats metaphor, and a horse walks by, and that whole thing going on. Okay, here's the thing. The text is my pasture. The text is your pasture. It's got a fence on it. The fence are the lines created on the page, the book itself, comedy, or whatever you choose, Jane Eyre, Henry James is the ambassadors, William Faulkner's Absalom, Absalom, I don't, I don't, Virginia Woolf's to light us, it doesn't matter. The text is itself the pasture, and you have to figure out, does it fit inside this text? For example, if you're going to interpret it in an Emily Dickinson poem, you have to kind of look at the poem itself as the fence of your pasture and how do things fit in it? And you have to make sure that you're constantly basing things on the text not the subtext. So when I talked about sorrows and windows of sorrows, well, when Pierre de la Vigne talked about it, and then I brought it up that the poet may be behind that line, that that may be the motivation for comedy, I'm positing a subtext. And we would be ill-advised to build an interpretation on my imagination of a subtext. I have imagined what I think is a perhaps subconscious motivation for the poet, but you can't now build much of a structure on that because we're so far down the rabbit hole of I believe that he believed that I would believe. Here's the problem. The I would believe has to keep coming back to the he believed. You have to keep coming back to the text and you have to keep standing on the text itself and trying to limit your understanding to exactly what's going on there. And you may think, oh, you know, um, I don't know, I'm a great gardener and I love to garden. And so this whole canto about trees and people turned into thickets and bushes and all this stuff, it means yada, 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 because I like my rose bushes to yada, yada, yada. No, see, you can't, you can't really do that. I mean, you can, but it's not really in the tradition of literary hermeneutics, which comes out of this biblical tradition of trying to stand on a text and then push a structure up from it that will somehow be secure on the land. I'm not sure that my seeds and all the seeds have to be the same is a secure interpretation of that passage. I'm not enough of a biblical scholar to know that. So I'm not sure that that's a secure biblical stance there, but I am sure I could build that structure. Somebody might be able to knock it down. That's a long way around to say, I think Dante's onto something with, I believe that he believed that I would believe in a canto all about interpretation and rhetorical fancy dancing and trying to, to discern motivation underneath a barrage of words. Let's move on to the second question. 
Hendrik from the Netherlands wrote me on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com, goes to the same place, and said, essentially, Hendrik, I asked you this if I could simplify your question before, so <laughs> here it is. Here's the simplification. Aren't you putting too many modern demands on this text? Um, aren't you getting too close to a post-structuralist understanding of this text? Okay, let me back up. This podcast, Walking with Dante, is basically for a little bit of an obsessive generalist. <laughs> How's that? That's who I think is the prime listener to this podcast, an obsessive generalist. And somebody who takes Dante very seriously and wants to go a little further into it. And I hope that this podcast leads you out to more scholarly takes on Dante over the course of time. This is a good, I think, nicely paced, I hope, introduction to comedy, to kind of the problems inherent in it. I don't often solve a lot of those problems. And here's the thing. Of course, running in the back of my head is Derrida and post-structuralism, along with all this I believe that he believed that I would believe. But I didn't present it that way because, again, I don't want to descend into a scholarly discussion of these passages. I want to keep this a little bit more up. But Hendrik is right. It is getting very close to modern demands. And as I talked to Hendrik, I'm, he's, he claimed that I am asking for coherence in a medieval world, oddly post-structuralist and coherence, which doesn't make sense together, as we laughed about together over our course of our email conversation. Okay, anyway, we, I'm asking for too much coherence in the text because what I'm doing is I'm saying, you know, these shades, the these suicidal squanderers are breaking through the underbrush and then they're having to breathe really hard. And listen, you're asking for a medieval text to do what a modern text would do. That is be logical or coherent. And medieval texts don't exist in this framework. And there is something to be said for that. And Hendrik could be very right. And I could be putting too many demands on the text. So then he went on and explained to me his understanding of what's going on here. And this is really what I want to come to, his understanding, because I think it's fascinating. His claim is that the, the comedy starts out as a dream poem. You know that I don't hold this. The first words of the poem are, I found myself, not I woke up. Despite so many English translations of I woke up in a dark wood, it's still I found myself in a dark wood. But okay, I don't hold that it's a dream poem, but this is Hendrick's thought. Like many medieval works, the comedy starts out as a dream poem. But Dante is reaching a point in which he is realizing that you can't write a dream poem about the afterlife without it having to be, well, then fictional. That's a word we would use, not Dante would use. Fictional or not true. And so the truth claims are starting to bear in on the poem. And what had started out as a dream sequence with beasts on a mountain and Virgil appearing and all this is slowly morphing from a dream into reality. And those are two big words for Dante, but you get the idea that Dante is slowly working in the South that, wait, I'm not writing a dream poem. I'm writing about what actually happened. And that at this point in Inferno, Dante is becoming increasingly uncomfortable with that notion that he's going to have to make a truth claim, but especially 
once he gets up to paradise. He's going to have to make a lot of truth claims about this is how the saints are. This is what they look like up there. And this is how they act up there. And this is what they do up there. He's going to suddenly have to start making claims toward truth. And that right now in Inferno, we can see his discomfort with this movement from, to use totally modern words, a dream poem to a realistic description of a journey, a realism poem, as it were. This is a fascinating take on the comedy that I wanted to share with you. It is one that has never occurred to me before. I like it quite a bit. It does save me a bit from screaming about breathing shades. I still like my screaming a bit, but hey, it saves me a bit from that. I do think Dante is trying to work something out here. I don't hold that the poem starts out as a dream poem and then moves to something else. I I hold that it starts out as a realistic poem, and then the weight of that problem starts to bear in on Dante. And Dante's realism claims are starting to suddenly become as important as his truth claims, and that those two things in tension are becoming difficult against each other. But I like this idea from Hendry. I like this idea that in most medieval poems, this would be a dream sequence, a dream poem, and that Dante is slowly pushing out from that and moving away from the accepted genre that this poem should be written in. Nice. Nice thought. A nice corrective, perhaps, to my interpretation of the poem itself. And nice alternate viewpoint. See, you can build a lot of structures off a poem itself. Okay, third question. I didn't ask this person if I could share this, but I want to share it with you. This came up about translating and how the translations of the poems work. And basically, this person wrote me and said that he is working on a book on English language translations of Dante. And did I know, and in fact I didn't, that my translation of the first three lines of the first canto of Inferno is exactly the same. Those lines are exactly the same as that of John Carlyle's translation from 1849. No, I didn't. I do know the Carlyle translation. Well, I shouldn't say I know it. I know of it. It's one of the first big English language translations out there. So yes, I know of it. And yet, at the same time, no, I don't know it. And no, I didn't know that my translation was the same. I suppose there's only so few ways you can translate these lines, but there you go. It was fascinating to me that it would be so um, close. And we got into a discussion about probability and how probability would work. A little bit of wonkiness there about how all that would work. And then basically the question came up, well, well, how do you translate this poem? And so I want to answer that. How do I translate this poem? Here's how I do it. Yes, I know Italian. Yes, I don't know modern Italian very well. I'm embarrassing in a shop in Florence, but I know medieval Italian <laughs> a little bit better, which does mean little good, but I know it a little bit better. Here's why. I read Dante for two years in my graduate program with the now unfortunately long dead medievalist Lois Roney. Lois Roney had a passion for Dante. Her academic appointment was for Chaucer, but she had a passion for Dante. And for two years, we read Dante together in independent studies. Essentially, she taught me a rudimentary grammar of medieval Florentine. That's essentially what happened to me over those two years. It was wild. We read so many texts around Dante as we were reading Dante. 
Okay, so how does this work? All the translations here are ad hoc. I, I actually work on each canto's translation as the episodes of those cantos are being ready to be recorded. So the first thing I do, so let's say I'm going to work on Canto 14, which comes up next. I start to work on those translations. Over time, I develop them. It takes me a couple days to translate Canto 14. I mess around with it. I go outside and work in the yard. I come back inside and work with it a while. But again, I am not trying to do a publishable translation. I'm trying to do a serviceable translation for this podcast. And I'm trying to put it close to modern English in everything I do. So I do the can it's I do the cantos ad hoc one after the other as they come up. I use the Petrochi. If you go back and look at the history that we listen to the episode on this podcast of so the history of the medieval manuscript transmission, you'll know what I'm talking about. I use the Petrochi because simply it's the easiest way to follow me in the printed text for most English language speakers. Most facing page translations in English are going to use the Petrochi as the Florentine on one side of the page. So if you go out, as I constantly suggest, and get the Hollanders or Lombardo or any of these other translations that are facing page, then you'll see the Petrochi text running down one side and it's just easiest i decided that early on when i was thinking out this podcast because the petrochi text of the comedy is kind of the textus receptus right now now i realize that if you're listening to this episode 10 years from the date of my recording it this probably isn't true anymore but for now this is the truth so how do I do the translations? I do them with a dictionary and my weird grammar that I saved from, I don't even know how many years ago, my notes with Lois Roney. Well, let's see. Good grief. That would have been 83. So a long time ago, I saved those, that grammar as I'm writing it out, all my notes from my reading Dante with her. I've got all that out and I've got a dictionary out and I do my translation and I rework it, as I say, a few times. I go outside, work in the yard, go upstairs, uh, <laughs> have dinner with my husband, go to bed, wake up the next morning thinking about it, change a little bit. But again, I'm trying to do a rough translation and then I do check it with a host of other translations to make sure that I'm in the ballpark. And the translations I use are Lombardo, Durling, Longfellow, Esselon, Bang, and Gray. Those are the translations that I use to check mine to make sure I'm in the ballpark somewhere with my translation. And why do I do my own translations on this podcast, which is another question this person asked me. Why? Why don't you just use another text? When I started to think about developing this podcast, I wrote a publisher. I won't name the publisher and I won't name the translation, but I wrote a publisher and I said, can I use this translation on my podcast, reading it, but never printing it. And I'll always give credit and I'll always give a link to buy this translation somewhere. I didn't hear anything for a bit. And then I got an email back from a law firm, a strongly worded email about copyright infringement and about using translations like that on my podcast. 
and it scared me. I have to, I'll be quite honest with you. It put me off doing this podcast for about four months because it scared me. I thought, oh no, well, what if I can't use some big scholars translation? And that's how I decided to do ad hoc rough translations, basically because of that sternly worded letter from a publisher's law firm. I thought, well, heck, then I got to just do it myself. But I don't trust myself, and I do check my translations against others. They're Lombardo, Durling, Longfellow, Esselon, Bang, and Gray. And then I'm off to the running. And we're off to the running to Canto 14. We're moving on. Great questions. Fabulous interactions online. This is just some of them. I've had fabulous... (laughs) discussions of that bring up the word Derrida or the name Derrida on social media. Uh, it's been wonderful to talk about Canto 13 with people. I relish doing this. It is part of the joy of this podcast. Thanks for listening and being so interested and come back next time because we are going on to the blasphemers. Now I promise. I'm Mark Scarborough and this is Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.